Hello everyone, thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. I am your host, Samuel Elliott. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking to a writer and creative writing teacher, a lovely lady by the name of Belinda Lyons Lee. Belinda has written a, she's going to be talking to me about her debut novel, uh, Toussard. Toussard being the titular character, uh, Marie Toussard, which you probably have heard of the name at least. Certainly I had Madame Toussaint's, as in the wax figure sculpture museums that are kind of popular, certainly um, have been spread up all around major cities. I believe there's one in Darling Harbour. But anyway, hearkening back to the original source material there or the historical figure, Belinda has written this incredible gothic historical fiction novel set within the close of the 18th century turn of the 19th century within Paris and London. Toussaint. Uh, so we're going to be delving into some of her influences, what's inspired her, uh, along with some of the kind of themes that are recurrent throughout the uh, the novel. So if you could all give a big round of a digital round of applause to Belinda Lyons Lee talking to me about her debut novel, Toussaint. Belinda Lyons Lee, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going today? I'm going very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. All right. So first and foremost, I kind of, I've got to say, I sort of answered my own question when I started to right. read your acknowledgements uh, at the uh, end of the book, because I, I, I assumed that um, Toussaint herself would be an actual historical figure, but I didn't know that quite a lot of the, the cast that feature actually are somewhat historical figures, albeit based yes. on historical people. Is that where your yes. imagination originally sparked from to write this story? Yes, you're so right in that observation. There are a whole cast of characters that are based on real life people. And I some of those situations and those people and how they all collide, I could not have dreamt up myself. Um, it's just been spectacular, spectacular the way some of them have just naturally come together. Um, and so far as how I first got the idea, I came into writing about Marie Tussaud um, sideways is how I like to describe it. Um, I was actually initially writing, well, I had an idea for a middle grade uh, novel that was mm -hmm. going to be set in 19th century London, which is no surprise to anyone who knows me because that's the period I'm obsessed with. So it was going to be set in 19th century London and it was going to involve a wax sculptor, uh, an older man who was a very hard taskmaster, and I imagined him living in the basement of this sort of London um, home in a cellar and he had this young apprentice was I was going to have about 10 or 12 and I really saw that that image of that underground cellar very very clearly and started to get very excited about that but then realized hold on when were wax sculptors first being made when were they when were these things first being constructed and how um, obviously writing historical fiction it has to be to a degree uh, accurate and authentic so that's how I began researching the wax figures and how they were made and then I invariably came across Madame Tussaud's wax museum and then went down the rabbit hole of Marie Tussaud. Now the moment I started reading about her that was the moment that just stopped me cold and I thought I have to write about this woman. I had no idea that she had endured what she had through the French Revolution I got terribly excited when I saw that she'd paired up with a German stage magician because I just love all things magic. And I thought these two coming together, um, as well as another historical figure, 
um, that was tied up with the Baker Street Bazaar, which is where Marie Tussaud first had her uh, exhibition. Um, another historical figure of the fifth Duke of Portland and his, um, what shall we call them, his activities. Uh, those three coming together just provided me with all the stimulation I needed to write something which has got all my favourite ingredients of magic and 19th century London, dresses, remote places, hauntings, uh, manor houses, dubious morals, the whole bits and pieces. So you, you mentioned that you got into a, a rabbit hole, so you're falling down the rabbit hole of the research. What, yeah. How did you go about peering back the research? Because I, I could only speculate that there would have been a colossal amount and one could easily drown yeah. in it. How did you then yeah. keep that sort of paired within this, uh, obviously focus narrowed on your narrative or the story that you wanted yeah. to tell? Such a good question, Samuel, because... It is difficult um, when writing historical fiction to tread that very fine line of how much the reader needs to know mm. and how much um, you put in there to stimulate all five of the reader's senses so they feel completely immersed in the place, but at the same time um, not wanting to bore anyone stupid and not wanting to, in particular, blow out the word count. So I think in the end, you know, it blew out... I don't know, to something ridiculous like 115,000 words um, because I had put levels of detail in there that uh, were wonderful and needed to be in there initially in order for me to become really sharply focused and clear about what was happening in there. Um, but, of course, you know, through the editing process, realising that um, I have heard it described as the research needs to be like the wallpaper in the room. And that's something that I always chuckle about because the 19th century were, um, was famous for having this incredibly green wallpaper that people used in their drawing rooms. It was just loaded with arsenic and, and people died. So um, when I talk about uh, wallpaper as a metaphor, I don't, want to, uh, I don't want my reader to die with too many details but I do want it to still be vibrant enough for them to feel like they're there. So, yes, always a tricky one to balance. Right, okay. Well, let, let's continue along with that because one of the aspects I felt that uh, was one of your greatest achievements throughout was the marrying or the blending of the anatomy or describing this actual building of, of oh, this yeah. body because it's, it's seeming seemingly it was almost uh, tantamount to me uh, consulting, uh, yeah, if I wanted to bring something to life or I would just follow the step-by-step guide that you've kind of yeah. outlined there, definitely outlined there, and I probably would. I'd probably be able to I have my own automaton just because it was just yeah. so well described how you did it. And, again, and it harkens back to kind of what we just said, you didn't uh, beat the reader about the head with it and you didn't have long slabs of describing it. It was just yeah. very succinct. And I wondered how you, if you yeah. consulted a lot of anatomy books or what, how did you go about that? I did, yeah. I watched an inordinate amount of YouTube clips from some really interesting, engaging people who are really into automatons. Um, and I watched hours and hours of footage of um, the whole construction process for various different automatons. Um, and so I got a really thorough, detailed understanding from the mechanical point of view of how that takes place. Now, um, that's not the way my mind works. Mm. I, 
I'm not naturally drawn or I don't naturally have an affinity with mechanics. But I found it fascinating. And so being able to watch tutorials, being able to watch documentaries, being able to read um, accounts, read instruction manuals, this sort of thing, um, really gave me a very strong foundation from which to be able to write with credibility about it. And I also saw it so very clearly in my own mind. I think it, you know, at the beginning, it was just a construction process, but as I delved further into it, I, I, they were my hands that were making it. They were my hands that were picking up the pieces and feeling the texture of the screws and the weight of the hammer. And um, they became mine in the same way that Marie doing her wax figures, um, you know, applying the same process. There's some um, really interesting footage about um, the way wax figures are made. Uh, but with her early ones, there's just lots of reading, lots of documented reading about that. And again, at, at the beginning, that was just a technical exercise in order to understand. But um, being drawn into that and feeling that they were invariably my hands as well. So um, I hope that that comes through in the novel. It's not just a, um, an instruction manual, but the reader actually feels pulled into bringing something to life. Definitely so. Def, def, definitely so. And arguably so. No, rest assured, rest assured. Let's keep talking about this, what you, you just mentioned about making the hands your own, because uh, yeah. another thing that you did as well, very well, was making uh, Marie's wants and needs uh, and motivations your own as well, certainly, and then by extension through mine as well. Uh, the creation of these two, two Tom Toms that finish that, that feature throughout, um, she naturally didn't want them to be preyed upon by these kind of um, lecherous men that were orbiting in the the, the same circle. And yeah. I thought that was something that was also kind of quite interesting. And it's not something in which I've really encountered all that much before within, you know, uh, this creation of, of life. There's always a moral quagmire, but it's more about, you know, playing God and less so about, well, what's my creation going to endure at the hands of, um, of men yeah. thereafter? And that's kind of something that I wanted to touch on within that scope as well is that something that you always had at the forefront of your mind when you were writing this about you know making this this female and an anatomically correct female and then subsequently yes. what, consequently what should be subjected to after that yeah yeah um i think what i had in mind when when exploring an automaton that was anatomically correct and how men in particular would respond to that. I felt very strongly that the two men that you're talking, that you're referring to, the two characters, were desperately lonely. Mm. And I think loneliness is um, such a sad, sad uh, emotion to experience. Um, it was only the other day I was sitting in a cafe uh, having a lot of green tea and doing some thinking. And, you know, through the hour that I was there, two elderly people at different times, one a, a lady, one a gentleman, came and sat down and both had their cups of coffee at different times. And I just watched them in a very non-stalking, weird way. But I just watched them and there was a real ache there of loneliness. Now, of course, I'm joining all sorts of dots in my mind and, and quite possibly guilty of projecting. Um, 
But insofar as what drives these two characters in the novel to, to want to behold this wax automaton, to want to look at it, uh, to want to touch it, to want to do things to it, um, loneliness can, um, can enshroud someone. And I think it, we all seek companionship and solace and relief from ourselves in different ways. And for those two characters, um, as unsavory as um, one of them in particular may have been, uh, and certainly the way he used real life women was, um, uh, what's the word that we're gonna say that for that one? Certainly the way he used real life women was um, atrocious. Mm, mm. Underneath still driven by, uh, still driven by loneliness. Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting about the loneliness. And I do agree with you that probably the most confronting scene I felt entirely was, I, I think, what you're, what you're referring to, or certainly at least one of the, the myriad examples yeah. of, of his treatment towards a real-life woman that was pretty uh, yeah. distressing reading. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. What you got? You going to say? No, I'm oh. just agreeing with you. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, and then there was another element as well which um because for for a gothic tale um or mm. something that some a story, a story that was well stapled within you know goth, the gothic realm there was still uh this kind of like more enlightened um contemporary viewpoint looking back uh at that at the sort of societal sort of oppression particularly of of women then that kind of also harkens back to what i was just saying but yeah. i wondered as well because there was also the mention of, and it's 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 a term that I'm hearing more and more in documentaries, uh, hysterical mm-hmm. a hysterical woman, and yes. the very real possibility of if you're if you're being troublesome in, in any sort of capacity uh, as a yes. woman, then uh, that you could just be uh, declared as a hysterical woman, and uh, there would be some sort of agency that would facilitate you being removed and essentially just locked away in kind of this deplorable circumstances. Mm-hmm. And again, I wondered if that was also something in which uh, had it, it intrigued you in some component or some capacity yes. you wanted to, to kind of yes. delve into that a bit. Is that correct? Or Yes, absolutely correct. This whole idea of in inverted commas, madness, the mm. madness of women is something that has intrigued me greatly um, for a very long period of time, in particular for the 19th century. Um, the way women were suppressed the way they were objectified the way they were um, seen as dispensable and exactly spot on when you say that you know if they had views that weren't akin to their husband or their father if they um, expressed dissatisfaction or um, emotional states of um, sadness or grief at after a miscarriage or, you know, any sort of circumstance, there was always that um, fear of being deemed mad and being deemed, use the word hysterical, absolutely, um, nervous tension, all, all sorts of words and phrases we used as a way to instill fear in women and to effectively dispose of them, to make them subdued, to make them submissive, to make them containable, um, and really to make the men around them in this period of time comfortable and mm. self-assured in their position, not to feel threatened, not to feel challenged, and um, let's just keep on with business as usual with our uh, roles that we uh, each play, and this is very firmly the way a, a man behaves 
this is very uh, firmly laid out the way a woman, woman is expected to behave. And then a deviation from that was seen as consent. So yes, this is an issue that um, I do feel very strongly about when I read historical accounts. Um, I read a fascinating book by Nellie Bly, 10 Days in a Madhouse, a first-hand account of her deliberately getting herself uh, institutionalised in order to experience the inside of a madhouse. Now, that's just one book I read. Uh, you know, I've read numerous accounts of um, women who were incarcerated in that way and uh, what that did to them. So, yes, this whole idea, and I began the novel, you know, at the very beginning there's a quote by Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, about science has not yet taught us if madness is or is not the sublimity of the intelligence. And um, I guess the other, um, probably the other point I can speak on related to that is how creativity for artists whether it's a visual artist um, painting, whether it's like Murray with her clay, whether it's someone who's writing books or poetry, um, whatever form or expression it takes, um, this idea of it tapping into something other, something outside of yourself when you're creative um, is another idea that I'm also intrigued with. And then how that intersects with um, you know, some of our greatest artists in all sorts of uh, fields have been deemed slightly, in inverted commas, mad. Um, and why is this? And what is the intersection of that? And, um, yeah, this phrase can be used to, to control and to subdue anyone who doesn't fit society norms in whatever way. No, you're, you're definitely correct in terms of yeah, controlling or subduing those deemed unfit or without the norm. It's... it's yeah. terrifying it's, it's truly terrifying you've, you've captured that quite well even though it was like you, you didn't delve into it it was just some it was just some uh part of the of the narrative and I was just I thought it was very very interesting and I, yeah I just wanted to hear what you had to say about that I like also yeah. that you mentioned about the creativity then you've got a Bronte quote on your Charlotte Bronte quote on your um your website and it's, it's it's something that I, I don't have it up in front of me but it's like I create yeah. beca because I can't do anything else or something like uh -huh. that and that in itself yeah. is kind of what you you've touched on there it's um mm. incredibly uh uplifting uh way to be I guess particularly if you if you feel that you might not um kind of fall within the strictures of the norm or uh others might not perceive you as norm and then you can just embrace the creativity and then run headlong into that Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah you're right that quote there is um I write because I simply have to mm. um and I put that there obviously because it's something that I feel a great affinity with it's um I've always wanted to and uh, want it's not the word I've always felt intuitively compelled to create whether that was um, at high school, I did um, art through BCE. And, and it's funny the way life works, isn't it? Because in BCE, in year 12 for, for my art assessment, I made clay heads. That's oh, did you really? Oh, get out I of town. Oh, okay. Oh, that's wild. That's crazy. Yeah, I made these clay heads, you know, and I made a series of clay heads and um, from birth through to elderly and 
my whole um, project was about exploring life and uh, someone aging and what's the meaning of the progression through life. Um, and this is when I'm 17. Yeah, and um, so I, again, um, just getting back to writing the technicalities when I said before about creating Marie's hands or my hands, I did pull heavily on my own experience of, of uh, making these clay heads when I was uh, when I was 17. So um, yes, I've forgotten exactly what the original question was. Sorry. Oh no, you kind of already answered it. I was just always interested yeah. into what you were saying with the, the Bronte quote and how that sort of has impacted on you or oh, shaped yes. you like that. So that's I mean, right. Yeah. So hmm. that's what I, I've always felt compelled. And, and at that age, I was exploring doing that with clay. I was also um, looking at drawing. I did lots of charcoal. And in fact, when I finished year 12, I had an offer to go and study either arts, visual arts, or youth work. And that was a real um, defining moment for me. I chose youth work because I felt um, I wanted to contribute to um, my community. Hmm. And I went down that path. So even though I did turn away from using my own hands with um, clay and drawing and went down the road of working in welfare for, for some time, I came back around through my writing. So that's something that I, I had always been tinkering away with poetry and short stories in the background. Um, and then the writing sort of came to the forefront through my love of literature and reading and teaching, ending up in the classroom with teaching. So that kind of dovetails nicely into what I next wanted to get on to anyway, which is how much is that experience, and this is what I always love hearing from writers, um, how much yeah. had that experience, would you say, ultimately has informed your writing and your, yeah, your craft of writing? Yeah. And when you say how much of that experience, which experience in particular do you mean? When you chose when you chose to do the, the social work or the working of children. And yeah. 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 How much does that inform my writing? Yeah. I think um, from a young age, again, I was 17 when I first started volunteering uh, in our local mall. Mm. And uh, I started volunteering in what was called the Outpost. And that was a, a place that... Um, provided food and drink and um, support to people living on the streets, people experiencing homelessness. And I saw at a very young age um, lots of things that um, perhaps drew me into being interested in psychology and being interested in what makes people tick, um, in being interested in um, how to companion and journey with people wherever they're at, they were at. So, um, you know, at that age experiencing, um, I had quite a lot to do with a young fellow who had a raging heroin addiction. Um, I got to know an elderly gentleman who lived on the streets who was very well educated, um, but was living that, living that lifestyle for a whole host of reasons. So I think I've always been intrigued with... Um, essentially what makes us tick and I think mm -hmm. the question that I wanted to throw up into so is the same question that I asked myself at 17 it's the same question I still ask myself now and that is that uh, is it true that what happens in you is more important than what happens to you and at that age when I was looking around and spending my Friday nights uh, from six till nine 
uh, in the outpost and I was hearing and seeing people who had had a lot of stuff happen to them Mm. um, on the streets and how that, of course, goes some way to shaping who who they were in the same way that I've had things happen to me. I'm sure you have. I'm sure our listeners have. We've all had experiences of things happening to us. But my question about that still remains is, is it more important in terms of shaping who we are, our response to that, what happened within us, that our interior landscape, our interior world? And insofar as how this relates to Marie, well, I mean, surviving that experience of the French Revolution, having her head shaved in readiness for the guillotine, living in a prolonged state of terror, and then being released on the condition that she makes the wax death masks of her victims. She had a lot of things happen to her in a time where there was no um, availability of mental health. You know, these are concepts that simply weren't around. And if she, if she had have expressed um, any of that, that would have been deemed, as we, we talked about before, um, unstable, mm. you know, hysterical and not acceptable. So for me, what I wanted to look at with Marie, she had a lot of things happen to her, but what was her defining moment was her series of choices about what happened within her, how she chose to deal with that. And she used her creativity. She used her skills with wax as a way through it all. She used her creativity as a way to make sense of it all. And, you know, I can think of the Chamber of Horrors as a perfect example of that. Um, You know, this is a woman who not only could do lifelike technical reproductions of people so that they were correct, but she had this Chamber of Horrors, which um, in some way, you know, you could argue was the shadow side of what has happened to her, was a physical outworking or manifestation of that, her way of trying to make sense of it. Um, And then she used also what had happened to her to build this thriving business. And this still gives me goosebumps when I think about it, that um, at a time where women had no currency, she used these very things that had happened to her to build a thriving business in a world dominated by men on every single sphere. And it's still in existence today. We still pay. We still show up, whether in Sydney or London or Hong Kong. Mm. So well put, my God. That's hard, that's, a, that's, hard, that's hard to come back for, hard to follow up with that. It's amazing that, and you kind of just touched on it there at the end, that, um, you know, that there can be people from the other side of the world from 200 years ago, and yet, yet you can still readily find stuff that you can immediately resonate with them or identify with. Um, mm. And I get all that from from what you've said before, your work that you've you've worked with um, some some disadvantaged, pretty marginalised, and people that have dealt with some some pretty severe or traumatising stuff. I see all That's that right. in your writing because I could see that with with the way in which that yeah you've 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 made these fully fleshed out not trying to be punny, uh, fully fleshed out yeah. characters that, yeah. that that you can resonate with, all of them within some capacity, even the more reprehensible ones. They're still, they're still, they're not just a um, kind of a dark figure that's cackling and it's, it's evil for the sake of being evil. Blinder, I pick up on all that in your writing. That's amazing. Um, so tell me about, tell me about the actual writing of, of um, this novel and some of the, some of the challenges that you might've faced or, the, yeah. the greatest one that, that you face because uh, I know the struggle and um, I know that we're getting to read that something that's been worked on uh, 
untold hours and yeah so so what sort of things did you encounter tell us tell us about the process of that one of my go-to books um, in trying to understand my own thought patterns is Stephen Pressfield's Do the Work. I'm not sure if you or any of your listeners will have read that before, but that book was um, shone a light on my own inner self-talk. So when I think about one of the challenges and obstacles that I face to get this book into your hands, it would be uh, the internal self-talk that mm. happens through the creative process. Stephen Pressfield gives it a name. He calls it resistance. And his whole premise is that the moment anyone steps out of their ordinary, contained, comfortable world and makes a decision to pursue an artistic endeavour, whether that's starting a small business, whether that's um, deciding to, I don't know, um, study ballet, whether it's someone like me who committed to writing, you will be faced with resistance. And there's the resistance that happens in the physical world. Um, we know it as rejection letters. There's that. But then, again, it comes back to what happens within you and the internal resistance. So my biggest challenge is um, dealing with that internal resistance and how loud that can be sometimes, um, the voices of self-doubt, the voices of fear, uh, frustration, disappointment. Uh, there's a long list of emotions that go with that. But this resistance takes many forms on the, on the inside. So for me, my challenge has been how do I acknowledge those feelings, but how do I keep showing up in spite of them? And Stephen Pressfield's book has been, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've read that book. Um, it, I just love his um, straightforward, direct manner. And I love the way he just goes to the heart of the issue for me. So um, it's definitely self-talk. But the funny thing about that is that even though that can be very loud inside, I have always and I'm, I'm being candid with you and saying this, I have always had a tiny little kernel within myself that has never given up and has never doubted that I could. I, I may have not wrote for weeks. I may have been in the pit of despair, you know, all of those sort of things. And I'm saying it tongue-in-cheek, but I actually am being serious about it. There has at some level within me always been a little kernel of inner knowing of you can do this, and you will do this. <laughs> well, good. Uh, good. And, you know, uh, I'm glad that we're here talking now like that. And uh, everything that you said, I'm totally on board with. Uh, very much afflicted with the same sort of thing. I liken it to yeah. a, a devil sitting on the shoulder, kind of constantly yeah. whispering the, the forked tongue, telling you that it's uh, it's not good. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an awful thing, but yes, yes. There's the kernel, the way the way you said that the kernel is is yeah. That's that's sometimes that's all you need, uh, all all you yes. have, and uh, that can be enough to endure and yeah, make you prevail through untold hundreds of yes. thousands of hours of redrafts and everything like that. I noticed okay. also in the acknowledgements you thanked um, 
the hard copy people, a uh, lovely fellow yeah. by the name of Nigel Featherstone, who I've interviewed before. Uh, another yes. person, Mary Canoon. I, I, I don't Canoon. know. Yep. Yes, yes, I've never met her, yeah. but I'm sure she's lovely as yeah. well. So is that is that kind of like what? So did you did you um, have your manuscript at some stage, and then you you work through the the hard copy? Do you want to talk a little bit about yes. what that initiative was and how yeah. that might help you? Yeah, so I submitted my manuscript. I probably, it was a complete manuscript. Mm. Um, I don't know, let's just say it was draft five when I submitted it to the hard copy program and was successful in getting in. At that stage, it was, um, I think, if memory serves me correctly, there was 30 positions, 30 spots available, and you had to apply. Um, So I was acutely aware that in applying for something else, of course, there's a risk of rejection, but um, felt strongly, okay, you know, we're doing it. We're just going to put it in. Um, And I did and then got that email. And I remember I was in the middle of filling in for a science teacher in a science laboratory at school, taking his class. And I remember seeing the email come through and I just went, oh, we had to get up and walk away. And the kids were like, what's happening, Mrs. Lyons? What's happening? I'm like, not ready to talk about it, but let's just say it's good. And I was so ecstatic at that point because I thought, okay, great. This could be, I mean, look, prior to that, I've got a master's in writing and literature. Um, this has been a manuscript that I've worked on for some time, but I, I had worked on others and, and had an agent for other manuscripts. Um, came very close to being published with a young adult novel I, I wrote. But when I got that email in that science class, I felt like, um, okay, this could be it. This could be it. This could be the opportunity. Um, so I was ecstatic to be able to go out to Canberra a couple of times, sit under Nadine Davidoff, who's an extraordinary presenter uh, and has so such a wealth of knowledge and enthusiasm for her subject and enjoyed the couple of times I went up to Canberra and participated in that. Worked again on my manuscript, continued to work on that through, uh, through the year, drafting, redrafting, and then applied for round two, which was when they whittled down um, numerous people and was lucky enough, fortunate enough to, to get in for that. And then so that culminated in the weekend of um, over two days having one-on-one half-an-hour conversations with a series of publishers and agents who had all read the first three chapters. Um, I absolutely loved that experience. Why did I love it? I loved it because I was getting to eyeball someone. Mm. really probably for the first time I was getting to actually eyeball someone who'd read my work and who I believed had something intelligent to say in response Mm. now you know I was fully aware that that could often be brutal criticism but at the same time I was ready for it I was ready for it and uh coming out of that program I had a conversation while I was there with um with Barry from Transit Lounge and you know, within a short, within that short period of time, yes, it was only half an hour, but I thought to myself, here's someone who understands what I'm writing and feels uh, passionate about it like I do. So, yeah, that's how to so came to be. And then, of course, last year it was scheduled to be published twice, I think, um, postponed both times. And then here we are in April this year. So... We've finally achieved it. And you just had your physical launch last week? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was exhilarating. That was, um, 
in my hometown, um, my school community were there, students and teachers and um, all sorts of people from from my life. And uh, what a fantastic celebration to be able to share and acknowledge everyone who's been part of supporting me. That's fantastic. That's such a good story, especially hearing um, everything with hard copy because I think that that initiative has actually ended now. Um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it yeah. has. So that's um, that's a real shame on many different levels. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But um, look, mm. I, I, the way I guess that I would probably look at it within the context of, of looking at you would be, um, you you now have yeah you you've gotten um your daringly, wonderfully unique and imaginative and original novel into the right hands of the lovely human that is Barry Scott at Transit Lounge. Yeah. And I guess now, yeah, it's, 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 you know, just another, the next stage in your career, uh, depending upon yeah. what you next wanted to do. I mean, like, yeah. Are you are you are you writing something new at the moment, or are you still kind of like yeah. focusing on what, what's what's going on? Last question: what's uh, what's kind of happening at the moment? It's an interesting space to be in um, because with the launch of of Tuso comes a whole lot of um, admin things, mm. which I'm really enjoying um, interviews and responding to emails and and that sort of thing. So the actual time that I have in still trying to balance teaching. Um, part-time year seven and year nine English with my family life and then with writing Um, yeah it can be dicey Mm -hmm. but um, last year I actually I wrote another novel okay awesome don't even bother asking when it's said I think we both know the answer to that one Um, and so I've got that there in the bank so I'm going to come back to that when things um, sort of settle down a little bit more for me with Tuso and uh, have a look at, at that. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I'm very excited about it. Very excited. Yeah. Uh, well, I was a big fan of so so I'm very excited to see what you, yeah, next come out with uh, whenever that Thank is you. in the fullness of time. I'm very, very excited. Um, Belinda, Thank absolute you. joy reading your work. Absolute joy talking cool. to you. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for your uh, insightful and perceptive questions. Greatly appreciated. Honestly, bless you. Greatly appreciated. So everyone, that was Belinda Lyons-Lee talking to me about her incredible achievement of a debut novel, Tussard, which is now out and available within all good bookshops in Australia. It's also available from Belinda's amazing publishing house, Transit Lounge. I'm going to put the link to uh, their site in the description of this episode for you. So you can rustle yourself up a copy from them if you can't get a physical copy in bookshops. But um, again, huge thanks to Belinda for sharing... Um, some insight into her process and writing this incredible book. And yeah, go and get yourself a copy of Tussard now. If you haven't already, be sure to like and follow this particular podcast program with me, Sam Elliott. Check out the backlog there if you haven't already. And thank you again very much for listening to me and rest assured, a lot more episodes coming up in the coming weeks. Really appreciate you guys listening to them, checking out the stats. They're always proliferating. That's really, really good and validating to see that uh, that you guys are enjoying it. And you're going back and listening to the eps from last year and everything like that. So can't thank you enough. And yes, yeah, stay tuned. A lot more coming to your ear region. Thank you.